Hey. Hello, everyone. Um, so our speaker today is Max Bezerman. He's a Jess Isidore Strauss Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School. And his talk today will be based on his recent book, which is called Better Not Perfect, which gives you the uh, prescriptive roadmap on how to maximize the pleasure and minimize the pain that you create. Um, we'll begin shortly. Uh, one thing that you have to keep in mind, please post questions on the swap card. So if you go on the agenda, then choose the event, Better Not Perfect, and click on Live Discussions and Questions. You'll be able to post questions there and also upvote them. So the questions that are most upvoted will be picking for a QA session afterwards. And please welcome Max Bezerman. Um, thank you very much. And thanks to all of you for being here. Um, I want to start by... Um, talking to those of you who haven't been to an EA event before, because um, five years ago, I was in your situation. Um, and I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And, there, and I hung out a lot with uh, Josh Green, um, the brilliant psychologist philosopher who will be speaking at 3 today. And um, so I knew about EA primarily through Josh. And since the conference was three miles from my home, and it was only 30 bucks, and food was included, I, I kind of came over. And I remember coming into a um, big audience. It, uh, it was a smaller room, but it was pretty full. And I found a seat. And um, I was a vegetarian, but not vegan. Um, and uh, a young woman sat next to me. And she asked what I did. I told her. And I said, what do you do? And she told me she saved chickens. Um, and uh, that struck me as an interesting occupation. Um, and yet that seems to be very common in this world, and it's something that I've grown to be very, very fond of. Um, a year later, um, there was another EA event at MIT. Um, I think it was this conference four years ago, and um, I showed up about an hour before I was scheduled to be interviewed at that conference on my work on behavioral ethics, and the speaker before me was a guy I never heard of before named Bruce Friedrich, who many of you heard at 11 o'clock this morning, um, and I heard um, an older version of the talk we all heard. Um, there was a little bit more focused on sort of pitching the idea of the need to develop new products to um, create um, a supply of products that will lead consumers to demand more products. And um, everything that Bruce said that day made sense. Um, and it was information I had never heard before. Um, and a simple um, summary would be, that talk has changed my life over the last four years. Um, so Bruce's talk um, really transformed how I spend much of my time, um, both in terms of what I eat, how I invest my money, who my friends are. Um, so um, it was really a truly kind of a transformative um, event in my life. Um, so I'm going to be providing you with um, uh, a practical version of um, a pathway, perhaps for you to do more good in the world over your remaining 50 or 60 years, but also a pathway for convincing others to do more good in the world as well. Because um, one of the wonderful opportunities that I have as a professor as my occupation is I, I get I get these um, situations where there's people in front of me, and I get to try to influence the way they think 
um, they can potential have, potentially have a significant multiplier. And as future leaders, um, you can not only be, sort of do more good yourself, but you can get other people to do more good. And that's kind of the theme of the book. Now, a little bit of background um, before we get to um, the core arguments in the book. Um, by background, um, I'm a professor of decision-making or what's often called now behavioral economics um, and, and negotiation. And within both of those fields, there's a concept of rationality that many of you with an economics background know a fair amount about. And the notion is that humans um, either do or should act to maximize their cumulative welfare over time. And the world of behavioral economics focuses on the bounds to rationality or the systematic ways in which people don't do that, okay? So how can we predictably describe when people aren't gonna behave rationally? And over the last um, 12 to 14 years, we've seen a growing movement toward not just describing it, but figuring out how to move people toward more rational behavior. And what I'm going to be talking about today is an application of that same structure um, to moral decision-making, where the goal I'm going to adopt um, is going to be very much of a utilitarian notion of maximizing pleasure, minimizing pain, um, um, social welfare, maximization for the economists in the room. And I'm interested in the question of sort of what are the bounds to us acting in a way that will create more overall net good in the world and then figuring out some strategies on how to move us in a direction of in fact doing more good. So I'm gonna spend a little bit of time on the bounds to better behavior and then I'm gonna move into how can, we, how can we encourage ourselves and encourage others to, in fact, do more good? Again, I'll be using sort of a pretty typical notion of utilitarianism as a goal. Um, and um, if you want more on the details of what's up there, uh, you know, I, sort of anything that Peter Singer has written, uh, Moral Tribes by Josh Green would provide a pretty good articulation of what I'm thinking about in terms of maximizing cumulative utility. Okay, um, so um, I've worked on a topic, um, often goes under the term bounded ethicality, um, which refers to the systematic predictable reasons why humans act unethically beyond their own awareness. So I'm gonna largely not deal with the fact that some people are just selfish and don't have very good values and deal with the people like the people in this room who have very good values, who wanna do more good in the world. If you didn't, you wouldn't come to an EA conference. But meanwhile, there's probably things that you do that keep you from creating as much good as you possibly can. So I'm gonna try to give you a, a quick overview of why that might be. And some of the things might be your implicit attitudes. So there's gonna be very few um, hostile racists in this room, but there may well be some of us who act in implicitly discriminatory ways without the intention of doing so. Um, there's very few of us who are hostile toward outgroups, but there are many of us who favor people from our own in-group. 
The only problem is when there's limited resources and we favor our in-group, we're effectively discriminating against the out-group. When we overly discount the future, and certainly the long-termism part of the EA community um, is very familiar with this, um, over-claiming credit, if you asked um, four, four authors of an academic paper, what percent of the work did you do? Um, the sum total of four numbers on average adds up to about 140%. Um, not because people are trying to grab more credit, they honestly believe that they deserve more credit. Um, uh, and I'm gonna jump over five um, just on the sake of time and highlight overweighting emotive concerns under separate as opposed to joint decision-making. And I'll come back to that in the very, very near future. Um, and while I have a bunch of you here, I thought I'd, since I'm a business school professor, I thought I'd get your opinion um, on an investment problem that I have. Um, and you'll see that there's the S&P 500 up there. Um, and for those of you who have never thought about investments, you'll catch on pretty quickly. Um, what I need advice on is which of four funds to invest my money in. Now, I don't want the S&P 500. I want to do something more interesting than that. But I've narrowed your choices down to four funds. The tobacco trade fund, okay? The alpha investment fund, the fortitude fund in purple, and the spiky power trade investment fund, okay? And you should be formulating your opinion about which one you want to recommend to me as an investment as I talk. And we'll do this very quickly by hand raising. How many of you are bold and brave and are going to go with the tobacco trade fund? Yep, that's what I thought in this crowd. Zero. Um, alpha investments. You got one on alpha. How about power trade, the spiky one? And I'm going to go with that as about eight. And fortitude. Okay, and we're going to call that the winner. Okay, now the first thing I want to tell you is that some of you are going to claim, but I'm a biology major who's never taken any economics, so if I got this wrong, it's not my fault. But I've given this problem to all kinds of audiences, including people who think that they're very sophisticated in the, in the investment world, and fortitude is always the overwhelming winner. I've never had a group where fortitude didn't get 70% 70, 70 of the votes, and now we can find out what happened. That's fortitude. And I was showing you the performance of um, Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme. <laughs> so all of you fortitude people, um, it really didn't work out so well. Okay. Now, again, some of you are biology majors, so it's not your fault. Okay. But what I want to highlight is that this is the data that was available to professional investors who had MBAs from very fancy schools and PhDs in quantitative fields who know that you cannot dramatically outperform the market over a nine-year period of time without any volatility. Okay, so that smooth line that outperforms the market, okay, that's not possible. Now, some of you might say, I don't have the basis for knowing that, but I'm claiming that the people who were investing in Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme, in fact, did. But they didn't notice. Why didn't they notice? Well, my colleague Ann Tenbrunsel uses a term 
um, ethical fading. When you ask me, what do I invest in? I'm looking for high returns and low volatility. Ethicality, feasibility fade from the option set, and I don't even notice what becomes obvious. And I think part of what we need to do in this world is to notice a problem. Okay? A, lot of, a lot of what we heard at Bruce's 11 o'clock talk highlighted the fact that a lot of us don't even notice the problem of the inefficiency of our current food system. So getting people to notice data that would be obvious if, they, if, they, if it was clearer to them, I think is part of our um, objective. Okay, so I've just kind of given you, uh, tr tr tried to provide a taste of the limits to our, uh, or to the bounds of our utilitarianism. What I want to do next is talk about how do we get people to be more effectively altruistic in life, okay? And to do that, I'm going to show you a problem that most of you have never seen this one before, okay? Now, I know that it looks like a problem that's the most famous problem in the EA world, but if you look carefully, there's only three people on the left-hand side of the track. Okay, so that's my unique contribution here. Okay, um, and you can find yourself, you're the person with a question mark over your head, and if you do nothing, as you can infer, the train's going to hit those three people, they will die in an instant and painless death. But you can turn the switch, moving the train onto the right-hand track, saving the three, but one will die. And the question is, do you switch or not? And this is an EA crowd, so it would be a shockingly high percentage. But I'll tell you, with normal people, rather than EA people, about 75% switch. Okay, so whether it's three or five isn't all that important for those of you who have seen the trolley problem before. And many of you know this variation of the footbridge problem. You can find yourself again. There's a man on the bridge. If you do nothing, that train will hit and kill those five innocent people in an incident painless death. You'll notice that there are now five of them there, not three. Um, and this time, you can save that, those five people by turning the switch. The floor will open up underneath that man standing on the bridge. He will get hit by the train, become what's technically called a trolley stopper, and you can get a five for one deal. Okay, and the question is, do you switch or not? And again, since this is an EA crowd, um, too many of you would switch to, and that would ruin my, the problem, so I'm going to tell you what normal people do. About 40% switch, 60% don't switch, okay? The main thing I want you to notice is that switching is more popular for a three-for-one deal than the five-for-one deal if it requires dropping the person on the track. And if you want the psychology of that, Josh Green's Moral Tribes is the best source imaginable to fully understand the psychology behind that. For me, this is all set up. Main thing I want you to notice so far is three for one under switch is more popular than five for one if it requires the drop. Unless there's two trains coming down two different tracks. And you can turn switch A and get a three for one deal or you can turn switch B and get a five for one deal, 
but you can't turn A and B. It's A or B or neither. And the interesting result is that B becomes dramatically more popular than A. In comparative choice, people act in a more utilitarian way, okay? Um, they generally act in a more ethical way. In some cases, we might have a problem with the use of the word ethics if, if there's the, the ontologists in the room. In other cases, it's all pretty clear. Um, in other research that I've done with Iris Bonnet and Alexandra Van Geen, we also show that people are far more sexist when they continue, consider one person at a time for a job than when they compare two or more people for the same job. When comparing multiple people, we tend to use job-relevant criteria and our stereotypes don't enter our decision-making. But when we consider one person at a time, our sexist tendencies to think that men are better at math and women are better at words um, is more like, are more likely to enter the picture. So joint, uh, joint decision-making seems to help us a lot. Um, what I want to highlight so far is that joint leads to more deliberation than separate. And deliberation leads to more value creation overall. Another thing that we can do to help value creation is what John Rawls called the veil of ignorance. Okay? If we didn't know who we were in society, we would make decisions that were more just. So now, if before putting you in the role of the decision maker, we tell you you're actually one of the six people involved. You're either the person on the bridge or one of the five people on the track. And we ask you, what would you like the decision maker to do? And you don't, you, there's a five-sixth chance you're on the track and a one-sixth chance you're on the bridge. People say, I would like the decision maker to switch. And then we put people in the role of the decision maker and we can ask them, what do you think is fair? What would you do? And now, all of a sudden, dropping becomes much more popular after people have thought about um, the implications for all six parties involved. Or we can apply it to the COVID crisis. This, this problem was written in 2020 when ventilators were the thing rather than vaccines. Um, who should, and by the way, um, I was about to turn 65 as we wrote this problem, so I could be a little sensitive here. But should a hospital's only remaining ventilator be given to a 65-year-old patient who arrived at the hospital first, or a 25-year-old patient who arrives moments later? Assume that the person who gets the ventilator lives, the person who doesn't get the ventilator dies. And the EA solution, I would argue, is to give it to the younger person. You can save more life years by giving it to the younger person, given the assumptions on the problem. But we find that there's um, an egocentric interpretation of what's appropriate, biased by who you are. So old people want to give it to the 65-year-old, and the rest of you want to give it to the 25-year-old. But when we first have people think through this problem, with Rawls's veil of ignorance and give them the fairly bizarre task of thinking, imagine that you could be the 25-year-old or the 65-year-old. What would you want the decision maker to do? People now focus on the 25-year-old. And then when we switch to asking them, 
what do they think is fair? The self-serving interpretation by the old people in the sample disappears and they're acting in a more utilitarian way and giving the, um, giving, um, the ventilator where it can do the most good. So how do we go about improving the value that we can create in society? Okay, first of all, Bruce talked about it at 11 o'clock. We can get rid of the intuitive decision-making processes for the important things we decide in life and deliberate more. When we deliberate more, we do more good. We create better decisions. Um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book called Blink that unfortunately convinced lots of people to trust their intuition. Um, the only problem with that book is your deliberation isn't as good as your thoughtful decision-making processes, and we can create more good not just for you, but for the world when we deliberate more. So we want to deliberate as much as we can. I've given you two specific strategies on how to in increase your tendency to deliberate. One, think comparatively rather than assessing one option at a time, and using Rawls's veil of ignorance um, to make yourself somewhat more objective. Um, value creation is a mode of life. Um, I teach, I've taught literally tens of thousands of people how to negotiate more effectively. Um, and we often draw a chart like this, only it says value to you and value to the other side. And one of the things that we teach in negotiations is that the pie in most complex negotiations isn't fixed. And by making wise trade-offs across issues, we can move to, you can call it the Northeast, the biggest pie, or economists call that the Pareto efficient frontier. Um, and that the opportunities to do that are enormous. I think part of what effective altruism is all about is highlighting that that's true if we think about sort of what you're going to keep for yourself based on kind of reasonable basic needs or selfishness versus what you're going to do to help other people. And even if we sort of are going to hold constant what we are going to keep for ourselves. We can be more efficient in terms of how we can help others. And I think Peter Singer's book and Will McCaskill's book do a great job of talking about how to increase the impact of what you do with your philanthropy, but certainly what you do with your time as well. So sort of value creation is a mode of life. Living life on the efficient frontier is another thing that I think we can sort of learn to develop as a new normal. And I think we want to think about all the pleasure and pain we create rather than just the domains where we do good. So this, is, this cartoon's over 100 years old. Um, both of those people on the pedestal are the same person. You'll see it reads Carnegie in the middle. That's Andrew Carnegie. Um, who was both a very famous philanthropist, and you know his name from Carnegie Mellon, Carnegie Hall, um, and lots of Carnegie libraries in this country. Very effective philanthropist who did a lot of good. He also did en enormous harm as the leader of the steel industry and was at least complicit in the deaths of many employees during a famous strike that occurred in Homestead Massachusetts, where basically goons were hired um, to end the strike using very violent means in the process. Um, I think if you want 
a modern day version of this, I think you can think of the Sackler family, where we can find the Sackler name on lots of amazing institutions. Um, they've contributed enormous amounts um, to many of our universities, and they are also complicit in the deaths of so many people by fueling the opioid crisis along the way. So as you think about your own behavior, what are some domains that you could think about? Um, one that I think is critically important is noticing and speaking out against evil. So um, my current TV watching has to do with all the amazing scandals. And you can kind of pick your scandal um, from WeWork to Theranos and on and on and on. And the main thing I want you to do if you watch any of these sort of scandal stories is think about all the people around them who allowed them to get away with this, okay? And I think that we should all have, feel an obligation to speak out against evil, to keep the evildoers from creating the harm that they so often commit. Reducing waste. Bruce's talk again talked about sort of, uh, sort of losing eight-ninths of the protein efficiency in the animal system, if not worse. Um, generally, waste is um, sort of a very bad thing. It, it reduces how much good that we're able to create and how much pain, uh, pain, how much pain we can reduce. Um, having a mentality of um, waste reduction, I think, is a very, very kind of valuable thing, not just in the context of our meat production system, but we can think of lots of different ways in which resources are wasted. One of my businessy examples that I think is fascinating is um, a few years ago, we had Amazon looking for their H2 headquarters, their, their second headquarters, where they had 218 different municipal municipalities spending millions of dollars apiece to submit bids on what they were offering Amazon to come to their community. I think it's easy to state that more than 200 of those municipalities had approximately zero chance of actually landing the headquarters. And public resources that could have been used for schools, health, pandemic relief, were wasted as they were spending resources to pursue a goal that was never obtainable. Using your time wisely, um, many of you know the organization 80,000 Hours, which seems to be pitched at you, not at me, because I don't think I have 80,000 working hours left. Um, but even people like me can think about how to use my time more efficiently in terms of creating the most good we possibly can. And I think that thinking about your time in this kind of way um, is a tremendously powerful way to have impact. Uh, Linda Babcock, an economist at Carnegie Mellon, um, and her colleagues, there's four authors, um, are, have just published a book called The No Club. And, and they notice that, that productive, efficient women in university contexts get unlimited demands on their time. Um, because many universities want equal representation across genders on various committees, but they have, they're underrepresented in terms of the numbers, 
the women get asked to do more. And they get overburdened and then don't have time to do the things that are most rewarded in their career. And so Linda and her friends created the No Club so that they could support each other and say no to the many requests that they get. Now, there's a fascinating gender side of this, but I think all of us get requests to do things where it seems like the nice thing to do is to say yes. But if I always say yes, it's interesting to think about what am I going to not be able to do in return and what is the most efficient use of my time, even if it's not selfishness, but creating the most good for the aggregate. And of course, donating more effectively, which is the central theme of the effective altruism movement. Um, how we do this, um, there's so many people who have written uh, insightful things about um, thinking about this problem. I, I think that that's, uh, which I've been very inspired by. I would simply add an interesting notion, which I haven't tested, but um, I predict would, be, would work um, and would be fascinating to test. I predict that when people donate at the end of the year or at the end of the quarter, and stop and think about where do they donate, they'll make more effective decisions than if they handle those decisions sequentially, where the emotive aspect pulls at them as the request comes in. Okay, so let me close by um, offering you to, uh, sort of offering to you what my goal for you is. Of course, you don't have to accept my goal, um, but, the subtitle kind of captures it. Um, a realistic guide to maximal sustainable goodness. I think that it's fascinating for all of us to think about how we can come up with a level of goodness that we could actually enjoy and therefore sustain over time. So a lot of people have noted that utilitarianism is too demanding, okay? I can't constantly make decisions that treat myself and my family members equal to every other entity on the planet. Okay. I kind of accept that that's right. Utilitarianism isn't quite reasonable, but neither is rationality. And yet I think it's quite useful to try to be more rational. And I think it's quite useful to create more good. And we can all think about how can we be better so we create more sustainable goodness over time, okay? So I kind of like the idea of being 10% better in 2022 than I was in 2021. That seems actually shockingly doable. I wasn't that good in 2021, okay? But if I can get some momentum here on 10% compounded over time, that, that seems like a pretty good objective. There's also an interesting issue um, within the EA, EA community, because there's certainly people who emphasize the poorest people on the planet. And there's others who focus on animal suffering. And there's others who focus on long-termism. And there are certainly people who are happy to argue why, the, which of those three stand, strands they like best is the most effective for value creation. But for some of us, we might have more sustainability 
on one of those legs and the other. Others. And I don't think you should feel bad about that. I think if you can create a lot more good on whatever dimension you value the most, um, I think that's a terrific way to go. Um, deliberate. Okay, I want to emphasize that over and over again. Um, there, there, there's a lot of people who want to feel good about their, your intuition. It's fine to feel good about your intuition. Just be aware that you can create more good if you deliberate than if you use your intuition. So we're comparing your intuition against your deliberation. And I want to suggest deliberation wins. Um, aim to do as much good as you can. In sum, I'm encouraging you all to be better um, and get over the fact that you're not perfect. None of us are. Um, so with that, I'm going to quit talking. I'm going to open up the floor to questions, however um, Dimitri wants to manage us. I don't know what's happening. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be there, there he is. Thanks, Max. So I'll be reading questions from the uh, Swap Card app. If anyone else have questions, like from the audience, we can just line up afterwards to the mic here or there. Is this, this is good? Okay. So um, ba -ba -ba -bum. first question. So first question from Dennis. Um, people like Sam Harris and Robert Sapolsky have done interesting work and have hard and strong views on free will, arguing that more good will come if more people adopt the idea that free will is an illusion. How do you think about that question with regards to moral decision-making? Yeah, so, um, so I, I, undoubtedly we have some freedoms, and we could argue about how much is predetermined and, and how much freedom we actually have um, to, to make our own judgments. And my reaction is, rather than debating the question in the free will literature, I want to do the most good I can with the part of my decision-making that I have control over. Um, but certainly, I think that you know, the behavioral economics world is filled with insights having to do um, with the environment that's around us and how that affects our decision, which connects to the free will um, discussion as well. And a lot of the people in this room are going to have an awful lot of influence over the environment that other people are going to be making decisions in. And I think that we want to think about how we create environments, um, whether we're online or whether um, we're talking about the food display in the, in, the, in the middle of the hallway out there. We want to think about how we're creating our environments and how that's going to influence the decisions of others to create the most good we can. Thank you. So next question is from Kalim. Uh, what do you think are likely EA equivalents to Carnegie? Should we be worried about things like EA funding from crypto, given the environmental concerns? Can I have that again? I'm, I, oh, yeah, sorry. So um, what do you think are likely EA equivalents to Carnegie? Should we be worried about things like EA funding from crypto, given the environmental concerns? So, so I don't think I know enough about She'll be worried about, and there was a, a word there, and I don't think that, oh, crypto. Crypto, yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, I, I'd say you should get your advice from people who know more about crypto um, than I do. Um, but, but I don't start off with a worry that because someone's rich, there's a problem with that money. Um, I don't think I understand crypto. I, I certainly don't understand it well enough that I want to buy any of it. Um, so... Um, 
so I'm kind of ag agnostic on that topic. Um, but, but I do want to emphasize, just because someone's rich, I don't want to assume that they were complicit in murder the way I'm suggesting Carnegie probably was. Yeah, I think the concern here is that crypto like has, uh, well, bad results for the environment because of the crypto farming, like usually yeah. lots of users, like lots of energy and stuff. Yeah, so I read that in the newspaper, but you're asking me to make a cost-benefit analysis on whether or not the good offsets um, the concerns and I'm, uh, I'm claiming incompetence at, at answering that question. <laughs> okay, uh, next question from um, Candes. I hope I'm pronouncing this pro pro properly. So you call out noticing and speaking out against evil, but wouldn't it be better to be for something uh, like peace, plant-based foods or education than against? Um, I, yes, I, I think the positive, if you have to tell me, ask me, am I gonna be for good things or against bad things, I'd say being for good things is more helpful. Um, on the other hand, um, I think you will run into evils um, around you. And, the, and, and I don't think that the fact that you're doing good in other spheres takes you off of the hook from speaking out against evil. So you may donate 20% of your salary, um, you might help other human beings in very generous ways, um, but if you notice, as Tyler Schultz did at Theranos, that his boss is a fraud, um, do you have a job to tell the world that my company's products can kill people? I, my answer is yes, you, you have a moral obligation to do that. And it's hard for me to see how you could think of yourself as an effective altruist if you let these people die using, uh, using technology that you have good reason to believe isn't working. Thank you. Uh, next question from Aaron. Throughout the history of utilitarianism, a lot of philosophers have argued that we should internalize and follow subordinate, mill, or intuitive uh, here principles where deliberating about what to do rather than calculating utility directly. Does your thesis about the value of deliberation run contrary to that conclusion? To put it another way, are there some contexts where it is better to follow intuitively plausible tools rather than to try to deliberate about utility? Uh, are, are there some contexts? I'm sure there are some contexts. I'm, I'm, I'm making a, a general statement that far more good comes out of deliberation than, um, than intuition. But, but uh, kind of I want to speak to kind of the Bentham and Mill part of that question because, you know, I, I've learned a tremendous amount um, in my late 50s and 60s going back and reading philosophers um, that far predate our era. Um, and that comes from an accounting major. I, I was a deprived accounting major from an intellectual standpoint. Um, so it took me a while to find um, the work of philosophers. You know, I think that we are, I don't think we're supposed to think of the work of philosophers um, from a long time ago as sort of having some definition of right. I think they're supposed to inspire our thinking and Bentham and Mill both do that. Um, but Mill clearly assumed that we each know what we, what's good for us better than anybody else. And the concept of liberty comes out of that. You know, quite frankly, we know today as an empirical fact that there's lots of cases 
in which someone else might know what's better for you than, what, than, than you do. Um, we know that people don't save enough for their retirement. So if we could nudge them um, into saving more for retirement, can we make them better off than what they would decide on their own? We know that the answer is yes to this question. So, so um, Mill didn't have access to that kind of evidence when he was doing his writing. As we get more information, as we learn more, we want to update our interpretation. And I don't think of that as saying that old philosophers are wrong. Rather, I'm saying that we want to update with the, with the best empirical evidence that we have. Thank you. Um, oh. Yep. 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 Following. Thanks. Um, yeah. So, question from Chris. Are there areas you think we are failing down by being perfectionists? Are there areas? Yeah, we are falling down by being perfectionists. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I think so. Um, so I think the EA community is just amazing. I'm kind of stunned by your average age, but I, I, I think you're, I, I think the community is is just shockingly amazing. But when I talk to philanthropists who are my age, they have a stereotypic image of you as telling other people what they're supposed to do with their money and that everything's supposed to be done exactly the way the EA community has described in a perfect sense. Um, I think that that's, I don't think that you're actually guilty of that generally, but there probably are lots of anecdotes where you are guilty. That's, that's undoubtedly a mistake. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that I agree with the role models that I read about in the EA community because I think you might end up picking role models that seem sort of not viable for too many people. So I think that sort of having a perfectionist role model um, can be a problem. So, you know, I think that, I think most of the EA community was already on board with Better Not Perfect long before I called a, a book by that, by that name. Um, but I think that sort of trying to push people to where they're not ready to go can be a mistake. Thank you. Dimitri, there's uh, somebody over there who's been patiently waiting. So maybe we'll Thank you. Okay. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, so uh, one second, thank one second, you. Sorry, one second. So it's going to be a last question. Like, okay. Yeah, we're out of time. Sorry to the person who was next on Dimitri's list. Yes. Yeah, thanks, Mr. Raisman. Um, I was curious. So you've laid out a set of principles for personal progress. Um, and during your presentation, you mentioned this uh, element of 10% uh, annual progress. Um, I'm curious, what would you do to go about measuring personal progress and if that's possible? Yeah, um, so, so I, don't, I don't actually don't want to measure. I, 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 You're an accounting major. I know that. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm trying to recover from that. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so I was trying to suggest that I could be significantly better than last year and that that was very doable. And that's the way I want to think about it. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm actually, so people see me as driven. If you look at my, if you go to my website, you'll see I've published an awful lot of papers, okay? But my goal isn't to publish an awful lot of papers. My, pub, my goal is to publish useful knowledge. And I want to do more rather than less. Um, and, and I think about philanthropy in that way. I want to donate more in 2022 than tw in 2021, and I want to donate it 
wiser. I want to allocate my time to tasks in a wiser way. And, and you know, I find myself constantly thinking about how am I going to use my time, um, and I want to do that wiser. Um, but I'm not a big fan of saying I want to publish four papers next year. That, that doesn't seem like what I'm actually trying to accomplish. I'm going to end up with a metric that doesn't actually capture the essence which is contributing to knowledge. Um, so I, so I, I meant the 10% in an imaginative way, not a literal way. Um, thank, thank you all you. for listening. Um, I'll hang out for a while because I'm going to stick around for Josh's 3 o'clock class. <laughs>